the ministry that I do, Disciple Dojo, teaching, equipping, discipleship ministry, um, part of how I do what I do is through supporters, people that, that come along inside and each month support. And so somebody asked last week after I had given these out, they asked about it. And just wanted to let you know real quick the, the levels of support that we have. If, if you, you know, $10 a month, you get a copy of uh, one of the books I've written, autographed, uh, which actually probably decreases the value. But regardless, you get a copy of the book. And then um, for supporters, you know, there's like 25 a month, 50 a month, 100 a month. I'm looking for just a handful of people, uh, always, that would be able to support on a monthly basis. Um, individual gifts here and there are really helpful. And, and some people have been super generous. But just, you all know, for budgeting and for figuring out how you're gonna eat, how you're gonna live, you know, things like that. Having a month-to-month -month ballpark of, okay, this month really helps. So if you like this Bible study and you appreciate what we do and you hop online and you, you know, look at some of the videos or you like the podcast or any of the stuff, uh, consider becoming a partner and you get a bunch of free resources if you do as a way of saying thank you. You do not get a promise of prosperity, a promise of blessing or anything like that. You just get my thanks and, uh, that's all, because this is no health and wealth gospel here. But, uh, so that's just what's on your table. Um, if you have any questions about that, or you know, you're like, hey, I want to get $10,000 a month, then come talk to me, and we'll make that happen. Uh, regardless though, every week we do this. Those of you that have been coming for a long time, you know this study, the goal is to be an outreach for Roots Chris, Disciple Dojo, to this community the people in the South Charlotte area, particularly the people that work in these buildings near us and around us, the business community. Jeff's Desire, Jeff is the owner of Roots. He provides this uh, every week for free. And his desire is to reach people, to give them an opportunity to hear God's word and to, and to learn God's word. Not just a devotional, not just a sermon, but to actually learn the scriptures so that that will help shape their lives and shape who they are so that as they do their work in these buildings around us, that that's shaped by a godly ethic. And it helps them make wise decisions and it helps them to be godly people in the midst of the world in which we find ourselves in. So that's Jeff's heart for this study. That's why he provides us every week and gives us this place, gives us this amazing food. Uh, you know, I tell people whenever they come, the, the meal's provided. However, if you enjoy it, uh, please show that by tipping a uh, donation up front. That goes straight to the ladies in the back who prepare this for us. Uh, I don't get any of that. Ruth doesn't get any of that. That's just as a show of thank you for um, the people who provide this for us. So every week, um, just let people know. If, if it's somebody's first time, I tell them, don't, don't worry about the donation or anything. You know, But if you start coming and you're like, I like this. Oh, this is good. This is cool. Then we always ask that... Uh, we show our appreciation to the staff. So it's awesome when I come by to teach every week and I see that that box is pretty full because I know that the ladies in the back are gonna get all of that. It's gonna make for a little nicer day. Yeah. So we are ready to get started, right on the dot. We start at 12.30 every week and we end right at one so you can get in, get out, back to work. We're in the book of Exodus. We've been in the book of Exodus for uh, most of this year. <laughs> Yeah, not most of this year. Yeah, um, and we do this. We 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 walk through the book together. 
That's how we do this study. Some of you were with us for all of Genesis. We spent over a year walking through Genesis, chapter by chapter. And we, the thing that I enjoy about teaching this study is we don't skip the parts that are boring. We don't skip the parts that people skip over when they're doing sermons or uh, Sunday school classes. We actually dive into that. And so what we're in right now is a section of Exodus that a lot of people will kind of gloss over. When they read through, their eyes just kind of, okay, okay, a bunch of laws, I don't understand this. It's about animals and oxes, and I don't get it. And they just kind of skip on to the get on with the story. However, hopefully those of you that have been coming for a while realize that the story is in these sections. That these sections that seem kind of boring to us, whether they're genealogies, whether they're law section, whether they're oracles or poetry, all of these sections are building and contributing to the narrative of the overall book. And all of the books build and contribute to the meta-narrative of the overall scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And so what we always want to do whenever you're reading any passage in the Bible is you want to, like when you pull up Google Maps, right? You don't pull up and immediately go right to the street where you are because you, that doesn't tell, I mean, that can tell you a little bit about the street where you're at, but usually you want to zoom out a little bit and see, okay, wait, where is this neighborhood? And you zoom out, oh, okay, this is by 485 and whatever, okay. You know, or if it's in a place you don't know, you zoom out even more. Oh, okay, we're in South Charlotte. You know, like, you, you want to get your bearings. Like Google Maps, zoom in and zoom out. That's a really helpful feature. Well, that's helpful to do when you're studying scripture, too. Zoom in, zoom out. Figure out where you are. Right now, we're in the, uh, the law code of Exodus 22. Israel, if you zoom out a little bit, we see Israel's camped around the base of Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up the mountain. God has spoken the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. He spoke to all of the people. The people freaked out because it was really scary. So they backed away and they said, Moses, you go talk to him. Moses goes up the mountain and God is giving him these laws that are going to expand and extrapolate on the laws of the Ten Commandments. So all of this that we're in this section right now, chapters 21 through 23, are building on, they're expanding the ten words that he had just given in chapter 20. So that's the section we're in. We zoom out a little bit more and we see that Israel's camped around Mount Sinai after having come out of Egypt where they were slaves for 400 years. And we zoom out even more and we see that they went into Egypt as slaves for 400 years because God had promised way back in Genesis 15 that Abraham's offspring would be descendant, his descendants would be slaves in Egypt. 400 years and that when that was over they would come out as a nation into the land of Abraham the land of Canaan and at that time the inhabitants of that land would be so wicked and would be so corrupt that God would be forced at that point to bring judgment upon them that he had delayed for those 400 years giving them chances to repent so his timing was such that when Israel was coming into its home as a nation free to be his people and he was going to take them into a land where the people in that land were ripe for judgment, specific one-time thing by God, not, not a paradigm, not what God does all the time, but a one-time judgment on those people, then Israel then would be the means by which those people would be judged. And then Israel in that land would begin to fulfill the covenant that God had made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15 that through his offspring, in relationship with God, all the nations of the earth would see and be drawn to the God of Israel. That's the zoom out fully picture, right? So that's where we are. That's how whenever you're reading, whether it's Song of Solomon, whether it's Ecclesiastes, whether it's 
Ephesians or Romans, you always want to do that. Zoom out, figure out where we are in the big story of God. And then figure out, now where's this section that we're at? And then zoom down to the level of chapter and verse. Okay, what is it actually saying? So if you always have that in mind, then you don't get lost in this library that's known as the Bible. Alright? So this section then, we'll zoom back in. Double click on your mouse. Uh, we're back in chapter 22. And chapter 22, verse 1 in your English Bible was actually chapter 21, verse 37 in the Hebrew text. This is where sometimes the Hebrew verses and the English verses aren't quite right because... Don't even worry about it. It's not worth talking about now. Um, just regardless, the verses are off a little bit. So, chapter 22, verse 2 in your Bible is chapter 22, verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible. And that's where we pick up. The last section dealt with things like uh, animals. How this is, Remember, Israel is an agrarian society. They, they, animals are their livelihood. Animals are their primary means of, of, of financial transactions. They're, they're a farming, pastoral, herding society. So God puts laws in there about how animals should be treated and how they should treat each other and how they should treat each other's animals. And what happens if animals are at fault for something? Because it moved from laws about guarding human life into laws about guarding human life from even animals. If you, know, if you have work around ox and bulls, they're pretty dangerous. And so there were laws about how to, what, what happens when something goes wrong. Now it's going to move, it's going to shift into laws about animals and and even more about property and wealth and and finances things like that that's the section that's going to that we're going to have to do and then it's going to move from that into family relationships because family relationships were tied into the wealth and the uh, material goods family relationships were part of it was the community of the ancient Near East is so different than our body. You know, you drive home from work, what do you do? You pull into your garage, door closes, you get out, you go in your house, you turn on your TV, and you never talk to a single person, all right? Or, you know, you have your family dinner, but it's just you guys, there's no other families around, your in-laws are in another city, your parents are in another state, whatever. We're very segmented and isolated and segregated in our family relationships. So imagine the exact opposite of that and you get something close to what Israel's structure was. Family relationships were the primary dynamic by which their society was built. So things that affected a family were things that affected the village or the city. Things that affected a person were things that affected the family. So everything you did was connected. So there are gonna be laws about things like the, the primary way that families were constructed was through marriage. And marriage wasn't just Romeo and Juliet falling in love and it's all butterflies. Marriage was taking two families and, and, and joining them together. And how does that work? And how, what if that's messy? Or what, what, if, what does that involve? You know, one family's losing. If you were a son or a daughter, you were primarily, your number one role was to be a provider for your family. If you were a child, you worked either in the fields, in the house, um, in the marketplace, wherever you worked to provide for your family. So if you got married and were, now you were going to another family, your family lost one of their most significant uh, employees, so to speak. So how then are they compensated for that? So that their family doesn't go into poverty just through the act of marriage. These are the kind of laws and things that are going on in the background 
for when we read these sections that we're going into. So it's really important to keep that in mind. Otherwise, if you do what a lot of skeptics or even a lot of fundamentalists do, where you just read scripture directly as it's written, and in your head you think this is being written to 21st century North Americans, then it starts to sound really weird and you have to try to figure out how can God do this, say this, or how should people be in today's world and the roles of women and families and all this kind of stuff. But if you take that, that long view and say, okay, this was God's word to Israel in Israel's setting, and the words conveyed the heart of God, but not the vehicle or the, or the structure that God wants for all time. That's what we're doing in this section. Jesus made it clear. Things in Torah are written, and they take into account the sinfulness of humanity. They were not meant to be the ultimate permanent ethic as they're written on the page. Rather, they're meant to be the temporary ethic for God's people in the Old Covenant under a national structure until the coming of the Messiah who would then take that heart of God in the Old Covenant and would transfer it or, or actually um, weave it into the New Covenant where it expands into all cultures all over the world. And, that, and then that's how you get all of the New Testament conflicts about what believers can eat, what they can't eat, what holidays they have to celebrate, whether they can go here or go there. All of that stuff comes from people trying to read Torah and apply it directly to their setting. So that's what you don't want to do. That's what we don't want to do. And it's astounding to me how many churches and pastors even don't ever learn that basic principle of biblical interpretation. And you get all of these denominations that, that end up saying, well, you keep these laws, but you don't keep these laws, and you do this, you don't do this, and you know, we've got to take it back to the Bible, and we've got to build a society like the Bible, and you know, and it's, and it's just kind of misses it. Um, let's see what I mean by that. Chapter 22, verse 2. If a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. But if it happens after sunrise, he is guilty of bloodshed. All right, what's going on there? Well, ancient Israel. This is the, the, this, the thief is breaking in at night. And you fight back, and the person dies, you're not guilty of bloodshed. You are not avenged. Remember we said whenever there's a death, it is the, the job of the family of the person who was killed to avenge their death. That's what the role is, the avenger of bloodshed. That's a biblical role in the ancient Near East. So if somebody dies from my family, then it is incumbent upon someone in my family to be the avenger of that person who killed them. That's how I worked in the ancient areas to kill somebody from their family if I can't kill them. So what this is saying, what scripture is saying is there are times when taking a life, taking a life is always serious and it's, and it's never a good thing in scripture. But there are times when it's done, when it's excused, legally speaking. There are times when it is acceptable to use legal force. But... Right even in this law, scripture puts a cap on it. So it says, it happens at night. Somebody breaks in, thief and intruder breaks in, and, and, and you know they attack and they're killed. You're not guilty. It happens in the daytime, you are guilty. Why? Because in the daytime, you can see, you can call for help. Other people will be around. This is not isolated. Nobody lives in the suburbs in ancient Israel. This is right there. So there, there's, a, there's implicit in there is that you have a right to defend yourself and your family and your property, but it's not an absolute right. Now, it doesn't say if a murderer breaks in, 
this is if a thief breaks in, if somebody's breaking in to steal something, not if somebody busts in your house with a sword and is about to kill you. That's not what this law is addressing. What it's saying is if at night you may not be able to tell that this is a thief rather than a murderer. So you are okay, you're permitted to act as if it's a murderer. There's no electricity back in these days. There's no night lights. There's no, you know, night vision goggles, nothing. So you have every right to think that you are being attacked. But if it happens in the day, it's a thief. They're breaking into steel, not to kill. So you can't kill them in response. It's limiting that retribution of justice in this law. It goes on to say if a thief, excuse me, it says a thief must certainly make restitution. If he has nothing, he must be sold to pay for his theft. If the stolen animal is found alive in his possession, whether a bull, donkey, or sheep, he must pay back double. So this is the, pro the, the, the restitution process. If, if you steal and it's found, you have to pay it back and pay it back some more for your crime. Notice what's not said. If a thief steals, you put him in jail. There's no jail in Israel. There's no prisons in ancient Israel. There's none of that. There, that kind of justice is totally foreign to the world of the Bible. Because putting someone away, locking them away for a crime that they did against a person, the, God's goal is not, I want to punish this person for the sake of punishing them and to send a message to society, as much as it's, I want to make things right by the person that got wrong. And send a message, but send a message through them having to pay back double. So in our society, our reflex is somebody does a crime, they do time. That would just be so weird in the Bible days. Why are you? What? They should be working for the person. You know, if they stole from the person, they need to make it right. If they can't afford to pay it back, then they get sold into slavery for themselves and work it off. There was this idea that the person who did the wrong should make it right, should restore the biblical Hebrew concept of shalom, wholeness, peace. That's the goal of these laws. And so you see it woven throughout. Verse 5, if a man grazes his livestock in a field or a vineyard and lets them stray, and they graze in another man's field, he must make restitution from the best of his own field or vineyard. So I can't let my animals wander into my neighbor's field and eat his produce and say, oh, sorry, they ate your produce. Here's some of my scraps to pay it back. No, no, you have to pay back from the best of your produce to theirs. You have to make it right. And this is letting Israel know you're responsible for the behavior of your animals. You are to be responsible. You are to look out for your neighbor. Or as the Bible, as the Old Testament puts it, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you felt Jesus invented that setting? He didn't. It's in Torah. It's in the law. God was telling Israel. However, there is also an element of socialism. You look out for each other. You care for each other. Why would that fit any of our modern uh, economic models precisely? But what it does is it shows the heart of God in an ancient Near East economic model and how he wants everyone to not only respect the rights of everyone else and have their own house in order and their own stuff, but also to be actively looking out for their neighbors. That's the society that God wants. That's the balance that the right, left, Republican, Democrat can't ever quite get right. One side wants this, one side wants this, and God's like, no, I kind of want both of those. Figure out how to do it. Verse, verse 6. If a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes, so that it, thorn bushes, by the way, were the primary means of fences in the ancient world. If you go to Israel now, there's not a lot of lumber. 
There's not a lot of trees. You don't build these big fences or there's, you know, there's no barbed wire back then. They used thorn bushes. That was one of the ways of keeping an animal from grazing out in somebody else's field. Put a thorn bush there, the animal will poke on itself on it and say, oh, I don't eat over there, and they'll go the other way. So thorn bushes, this is like ancient fencing. If a fire breaks out and spreads into thorn bushes so that it burns shots of grains or standing grain or the whole field, the one who started the fire must make restitution. If a man gives his neighbor silver or goods for safekeeping and they're stolen from the neighbor's house, the thief, if he's caught, must pay back double. But if the thief is not found, the owner of the house must appear before, what does your Bible say in that next word? How many of your Bible says the judges? How many of your Bible says God? Yeah. The Hebrew word there is Elohim. It's the word God. NIV here takes an interpretive leap, and I don't think it's a very good one in this case. Uh, they translate God, Elohim, as the judges. There's reasons why there are times when judges are referred to as miniature small g gods. So in this case, but in reality, what the text says, it uses the word God. Very this, is, this is the situation that this law is describing. I have something that I want to keep safe. Let's say I'm going away for a while. There are no ancient safes at this point, you know, the safe cracking and all that. There's no, what I do if I want to protect something is I entrust it to someone who can watch over it while I'm gone. So let's say I'm going to go off to Samaria or somewhere. I leave my goods, my favorite whatever, to pass down my staff, my signet ring, my jewelry, whatever. I'm going to leave it with my good, trusted friend, McLean. I trust him. He's a good guy. We all know this. So I leave my goods with McCain. With McLean. Now, all of you know that that was a terrible idea because you know how shifty he really is. So while I'm going away, someone, someone, quote, breaks into his house and steals my goods. So when I get back now, Hey, McLean, I left my goods with you. I left my, you know, that was grandma's favorite signet ring. That was dad's favorite horseshoe, whatever. I left it there, and you're telling me somebody came in and stole it. Now, if I take him at his word, we go look for the thief. We can't find the thief. Nothing ever happens. Then what do we do? That's what this law is addressing. Because the next thing will be, well, that this mystery thief's not found. It's not like there's big cities in the ancient world. We're a tribal society. Everybody knows everybody, and we're all here together. If you do a five-mile search, you're going to find someone if they're within five miles. So then I start to go, uh, McLean, I think he is pulling one over on me. I think he made up this story about my goods getting stolen so that he could take them and sell them and whatever, whatever. So that's the scenario here. So what that could do is that could cause a huge rift in the, in the culture. I mean, think of it like... like all of us in this room, this is maybe the size of a village. You know, us and if we each had five, six kids. They, that would be like kind of village life, you know? So if there's, a, if there's a mistrust between members, then that could really, you know, alliances start forming and people get voted off the island and there's all kinds of stuff. So you don't want that to happen. So what this law does is it says, okay, rather than having this mistrust and this blood feud and this, you know, the rumors and all that, the two people, I, McLean, we would go directly before Elohim. Now, the question is, do we, or does it mean we go before the judges? Or does it mean we go before God himself? 
this is where we have to remember Israel was a covenant theocracy. They had no king at this point especially. And God was saying, I am your ultimate judge. So in cases that you can decide on your own, you judge those. And Jethro had already advised Moses. Moses appointed people who can judge. So Moses appointed people who can judge. And he could advise the honest people and the judges. But if there was a case that was too hard, they'd take it directly to Moses. What Moses would do is would inquire directly to God. God would give a verdict, and that was it. Well, Moses wasn't going to be there forever. When they got into the promised land, there was going to be somebody else. This is saying God would still be in a position of an ultimate judge, and they would still be able to bring their case before a mediator. Later after Moses, it would be Joshua. But the verdict, and after Joshua would be maybe the high priest, the verdict that was given was to be seen as the verdict of God. So that's why there's the, the, is it the judges or is it God who they're taking the case before? Really, it's both. Because the judges at the highest level are speaking the word of God, and there's going to be a thing later where God gives Aaron this thing called the Urim and the Thummim, and it's like an ancient way of discerning God's will, and the high priest could do that and render a verdict. But regardless, what God's wanting to instill in his people is he's wanting to stop any unnecessary gossip and suspicion and division and, and any of that stuff that happens over money, that happens over goods. It happens over stuff. Because in God's economy, people and families and harmonious relationships between individuals is infinitely more valuable than stuff. That doesn't mean your stuff doesn't matter. There are laws to prevent stealing. And there are laws of restitution and all that stuff. So it's not like God's saying, oh, just be happy if all your stuff gets stolen. No. You can seek justice. But the ultimate concern of God, justice, requires a restoration of wholeness, a restoration, a restoring of what was lost, which is that sense of peace uh, in the community. So he will appear before the judges to determine whether he has laid hands on the other man's property. In all cases of illegal possession of a bull, a donkey, a sheep, a garment, or any other lost property about which somebody says, this is mine, both parties are to bring their cases before Elohim, judges for God. The one whom Elohim declares guilty must pay back double to his neighbor. If a man gives a donkey, a bull, a sheep, or any other animal to his neighbor for safekeeping, and it dies or is injured or is taken away while no one's looking, the issue between them, now this is not property, this is now animals. So like I, I loan a work animal to somebody. They borrow an animal because maybe they want to breed with their flock or they need an animal to help you know, a plow field or whatever. This is, this is loaning and borrowing farm equipment, basically. Um, and is injured is taken away while no one's looking. The issue between them will be settled by taking an oath before the Lord that the neighbor did not lay hands on the other person's property. The owner is to accept this and no restitution is required. But if the animal was stolen from the neighbor, he must make restitution to the owner. If it was torn to pieces by a wild animal, he shall bring the remains as evidence, and he will not be required to pay for the torn animal. If a man borrows an animal from his neighbor and it's injured or dies while the owner is not present, he must make restitution. But if the owner is with the animal, the borrower will not have to pay. If the animal is hired, the money paid for the hire covers the loss. So in this little section, what God's putting in mind in, into practice is in an ancient agrarian society, there would be a lot of borrowing of animals. 
you know, you borrow some of that account. I need, I need to plow this field and my donkey's not big enough, or I need two oxen, I only have one, can I, can I borrow yours? And if it was a friend, sometimes they'd let them borrow. Most of the time they'd say, can I hire? Can I hire your animal out? This is part of how the economy worked. What it's saying is, if I say, yeah, you can hire my bull, and I just, you know, take it, then if, if something happens, if I'm not there, and something happens to the animal, it's the responsibility of the person who was overseeing it, if it's something that could have been prevented, or if it's something that, you know, if it's injured or whatever. But if it's something that's kind of out of their control, like another animal, a predator comes in and, and, and eats the animal, or a, a marauding party or something comes in and steals the animal, any of that kind of stuff, then that's when they take that the dispute and take it before God, and God renders a verdict, either through the judges or directly himself, through the high priest, whatever. But that's the verdict surrendered. However, if I say, yeah, you can lease, you can rent my oxen, um, I'll, I'll bring it over. And I go over there, and I bring the oxen, and we go in, and I'm having tea with the family and this and that, and the workers are in the field, and I can see them, I'm there, the animals do. Then the responsibility is still on me. Even though they're renting it, I'm still responsible for it. So if something happens and the animal gets injured and I'm there, I can't say, oh, well, you were renting it, so you're responsible for it. No, I'm, I'm still, I'm there. It's still my animal. So it's putting in place, it's, what, this, what these laws do is they try to, they're vague enough that they can apply to multiple situations without being specific. But they're specific enough to where they can give judges a means to get around loopholes. You know, there's like, there's, there's not much of, well, technically, that's not how law worked in the ancient areas. There were just these principles, these overriding principles. And one of them is, in, in this whole section, the principle is you're responsible for what's in your possession. And you're responsible for what you allow, how you give, how you win, how you loan. Uh, ultimately, you're responsible for it. So if you borrow something and it gets stolen, it gets lost, you need to pay it back. You borrowed it and you pay it back. If you're together and somebody's technically leasing it, but you're both there, it's still under their control. If something happens, don't make the person have to pay you after they've already paid you to use the animal because you were right there and you could have seen to prevent any injury or damage or whatever. That's the, so what we're doing is I'm trying to show those are the principles that are embedded in these laws that were applied in Israel. The principles don't change. The laws will change. We, don't, we are an agrarian society. We don't have, there's some of these laws we can't even keep. How would we go before God? What does that mean? Go, go and get in a prayer group together? Well, at this time, no. There was an appointed, recognized representative of God. You could go, today we don't have that. I'd go, what, go to our church? Well, what if we don't agree with our pastor? There's 10 churches down the street. We'll go to that church until we disagree with that pastor. Then we'll find another church. So, like, we can't apply these laws today as laws. But what we can do individually and collectively is we can apply the principles that these laws are transmitting to ancient Israel into our settings today. That's what we see Paul do in the New Testament. Um, Paul is, is <clears throat> he's talking about uh, paying, finance, taking care of pastors and teachers in the early church. And so there was a case where somebody was starting, you know, an apostle would start a church and people would be meeting and then, you know, they'd group together and then everybody would go off and do their work. And the person who was the pastor, the shepherd, the overseer, in addition to having to oversee all of the church, would then have to go do work as well to pay 
his own salary, basically, to provide, provide for his own family. And so, and this is what Paul did. Paul was a tent maker. That's how he brought in income so that he wouldn't have to. But what Paul said was, I don't want the other pastors, the other elders shouldn't have to do what I'm voluntarily doing, which is giving up my uh, rights to receive any support from you. Rather, you should support the people financially who are supporting you spiritually. There should be a, 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 recipro a reciprocity in that. So, and then to, to solidify that to his Greco-Roman audience, outside, he points back to the Torah, back to the Old Testament, to a law that says, do not muzzle the ox while it treads out the grain. We'll come to that law later. I think it's only it's Leviticus or Deuteronomy, maybe both. But the law is, do not muzzle your ox while it treads out the grain. And Paul says, see, do you think that law was written for oxen? No, it was written for us. Pay your pastors. Basically, paraphrase. Well, the question is, well, what does not muzzling an ox while it treads grain have to do with paying pastors? Well, what Paul assumes in that and what he knows that his audience understood was the principle within the law was if you've got an ox and it's treading out your grain, meaning you put a yoke on it, you tie it to a pole, you put a bunch of grain into a pit, you put the ox in the pit and it walks around in a circle, sometimes carrying a long, heavy sledge behind it. And it does that and that crunches the grain, it separates the wheat from the chaff, then when he's done, after a few hours, you take the ox out, you take a window and forth, you get in there, you throw this up in the air, the wind blows the chaff and the wheat falls to the flesh threshing floor. Do that for a few hours, and by the end, you have a pile of pure grain. So in the ancient Near East, they would do that, and when they would put their oxen in to tread it out, they muzzled it. Why would you muzzle the ox? So it can't eat the grain that it's treading out. It eats your profits. So to maximize your profits, you muzzle the ox, make it do all the work, get it out of there, then you've got your grain. In Israel, that wasn't allowed. What God said was, no, 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 do not muzzle your ox while it treads out the grain. Israel's oxen were allowed to eat from what they were working to produce. They were allowed to have some of the resources that they were making. So what Paul looks at that and he sees there's a principle there that God wants the one who's working to be provided for through their work. So then, what Paul does is he shines that light into the New Testament setting that he's writing to, and he says, so, if you have an elder or an overseer who's slaving, who's caring for your souls, who's praying for you, who's visiting the sick, who's visiting those that are in prison, uh, you know, who's doing all of the things that they should be, if you have a faithful, and that's the key, this is assuming that it's a faithful shepherd, not a, a, a TV evangelist type, you know, just in it for the money, um, if it's a faithful shepherd who is caring for the flock, then they are entitled to receive sustenance from that work that they're doing. Which means that those that they're caring for should pay them in some way, should share their goods with them, should make sure that their family is well taken care of because they're receiving work from them. So Paul takes a law about ox, oxen, treading grain, he sees the principle in it, and he does this twice in the New Testament, by the way. He does it in his letters, pastoral letters, and he does it in the Corinthians letters. Twice. Takes the principle in the Old Testament, the law, and looks in his New Testament setting and applies the principle to the setting without applying the law. You see that point? That's, that's really crucial to remember. 
So when you're reading these, we're going to stop this way because we're out of time. But when we're reading this section, that's what we're doing. We're looking for what is God saying through these laws. And then the next step, now how does that apply? When I go back to the office today, how can I apply this uh, laws about fullness and restitution? If I'm responsible, I make it right. Uh, you know, if somebody wrongs me, we try to preserve peace and wholeness rather than nurturing a grudge and spreading rumors and doing all that stuff. How can you apply that in your settings, whether it's work, home, relationships, whatever? But we're out of time. So have a great week. We'll see you next week, and things get a little spicy next week. So.